This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Scram, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, we're fully embracing this time of the year and investigating some of the more macabre elements of Scottish food and drink history. Earlier this year, I was lucky enough to attend Whiskey and Witches Presents Mythical Beasts, an immersive, mystical, musical whiskey tasting, try and say that five times, produced and presented by Christine Camara and Jane Ross. The show touched on the history of women and whisky in Scotland and explained how women who distilled whisky were turned upon by the church and society. These alewives and brewsters, as they were known, were often framed as what we would now recognise as witches. Singer and composer Christine tells me how in many cases women were distilling due to necessity rather than desire. Because brewing and distilling was such an integrated part of the household, of what women did in the home. It was also something that Jane said they could make a living off. But the more profitable it seemed to become, the more licensing laws were put into place that women, and this was mostly widows who were supporting a family, single women who were trying to support themselves, the licenses became so dear that they couldn't afford them. Jane, who is a whisky aficionado and runs the Mother Superior in Leith, also talks about how challenging it can still be for women involved in the whisky industry today. We also hear about their favourite jams and what audiences can expect from their shows. Connotations of witchcraft and herbalism have gone hand in hand for centuries, and delving into the ancient art of herbology is a great way to explore some natural magic in the run-up to Halloween. On the second half of the podcast, I chat to Catherine Conway-Payne, author of Herbology, a physic garden pharmacy, a book being published by the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh in the coming weeks, which includes an illustrated guide that brings herbology to life. Catherine takes us back to a time when insects, frog spawn and basically all sorts was used in medicine and self-care. She tells me all about how, even now, some of the remedies and uses from the past can be found in modern products, such as snail slime and beauty products. She also shares some of the lessons to be learnt from the book, including some brilliant uses for cleavers, more commonly known as sticky willy. And then if you take it in the morning, just quaff it off as you would like a really refreshing glass of water. It's just so good for the lymphatic system and it's very restorative. I have it on good authority, it's an excellent remedy for a hangover. (laughs) 
I'm joined by Jane and Christine and we're going to talk about Whiskey and Witches. Earlier on in the summer during the festival they had a show called Whiskey and Witches and I went along and really enjoyed it and given the fact it's almost Halloween I thought I'd get these guys on to have a little chat. So how are you both? Good. Very good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So could we just individually sort of chat about um, who you are and what you do and, and why we're here? So we'll start with Christine. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Christine Kamara and I'm originally from Denmark. I've been in Scotland for about a year and a half now and I am a singer and composer. So for the past six, seven years, I've specialised in Viking Age music and uh, the meeting between Scandinavian and Celtic folk music which is what we unfold quite a bit here in this show. And so apart from that, I also work in whiskey. I'm a whiskey experience ambassador and at the moment also part of the our Whiskey Foundation mentorship programme. And uh, so when I moved to Scotland, I was so lucky as to run into this lady. <laughs> and then we, we spun this idea of Whiskey and Witches. And Jane, what about you? What's your... Um... What's your story? <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Jane Ross. Um, I'm originally from Ireland. I've lived in Scotland for just under 15 years, uh, which is why my accent's probably a little bit diluted. I've been working in the whiskey industry since 2009, and I now own my own whiskey bar, which I opened in 2020, which is called the Mother Superior. And basically, I've always just done weird and wonderful whiskey tastings and experiences, and I've always tried to kind of advocate for the woman in whiskey and just try bring it bring a new crowd to whiskey I suppose. So I suppose the, the, the first key question is um, what are the main links to witches from whiskey or, or whiskey to witches? I mean it's whether rightly or wrongly thought of a maybe not so much now but it's historically been a sort of man's drink thought of as quite a masculine industry so I think people might be quite surprised to know that it does have a history of women making it possibly even coming up with how to distill but what are the links to the sort of mythology around witches so basically it all begins with alewives and brewsters and these were really pinnacle women in society who were creating essentially beer and spirits which were quite nutritious compared to the dirty water that was available at the time and particularly in scotland and basically people started giving any money that they had to buy what these women had because it was safer. Um, and this includes children. Children were drinking these beers and spirits, but not getting drunk. They were only like 3%. Basically, they were making more money and pulling the audience from particularly the Protestant church. And they didn't like that. So they decided to villainize these women and create images of them with the devil. And yeah, basically spun this story that the women that were once helping them be safe were suddenly the ones that were giving them something to make them feel a little bit funny. And it's something that goes all the way up to, if we get, go into the later centuries, around the end of 15th century, beginning of 16th, this spinning of the healer, the, the female healer, not only women, but primarily women, was uh, just kept spinning out of control and leading up, you know, to the witchcraft trials that came in the latter, especially in the latter part of the 17th century, but way before then, because brewing and distilling was such an integrated part of the household, of what women did in the home, it was also something that Jane said they could make a living off. But the more profitable it seemed to become, 
the more licensing laws were put into place that women, and this was mostly widows who were supporting a family, single women who were trying to support themselves, the licenses became so dear that they couldn't afford them. And actually, several women were prosecuted as witches for distilling whiskey. And the first one was Bessie Campbell in 1506. Now, apart from that, we see in different court writings, we also see one that mentions another woman who was brought to trial because someone claimed that she got herbs from the fairies that she put into distill, distilled spirits that then corrupted the minds and, you know, the hearts of men around her. So it's something that link has been going on for just about a thousand years now. Yeah. And it's still something we're struggling with today. Basically, it was like a way to sort of keep women down. They, you know, they're making money. They were like providing a service, but they were kind of getting above their station, as to say. Do you think it kind of set, set women back in that industry quite significantly because of the sort of witchcraft element? Oh, yeah, totally. Even, well, as Christine mentioned, you know, women were actually executed for distilling whiskey. And actually, weirdly, when I looked into it, the laws were never actually taken away. So realistically, they are, they are laws today that could that we could be tried and executed for distilling whiskey. And obviously no one has that fear at, at the moment, although I wish I never said it publicly because maybe the politicians will change their minds. <laughs> but as a woman who's been in whiskey since 2009, that's when I was 19 years old, 20 years old. And, you know, even when I went to the Johnny Walker experience recently, as a woman in my 30s, I, some man asked me if I, he said, oh, how do you know so much about whiskey? And I said, oh, I own a whiskey bar. And he wouldn't believe it. Like he was, he asked me probably a dozen times being like, no, but who, who's behind it really? And I was like, oh, you want to know the man behind it? And he was pretty much like, so it's just you. So it's still ingrained in society that women shouldn't be or can't be a part of this industry. But then again, it's ingrained in generational over thousands of years that women shouldn't be distilling and producing alcohol and so it's just... It is something that is very hard to work against because it doesn't only come down to um, an industry and the act of distilling whiskey. It comes down to power structure and the structure in society in general, which is laws and licensing laws especially, but not only that, the portrayal of women who were drinking throughout the centuries, going all the way up to the 20th century, was portrayed as her essentially disrupting you know, the household structure, this idea of a core family. So it was in danger to everyone's society to have a woman associated with alcohol in any way. And it's something that it, in certain bars in New York, for instance, it wasn't even legal to have a female bartender until the 1970s, I believe it was. So when you think about it, we don't have to go far back for women to not even be allowed a foot in the industry. And luckily we have amazing initiatives today like our whiskey foundation for instance who help women in the industry we have trailblazers like jane with her own whiskey bar bessie williamson from lafroig um, there's yeah. so many different women to help move us forward again and take our well our rightful place Please. alongside yeah. the men things that we recognize of witches like the pointy hat the broomstick the cat that that all has its links back to sort of brewing and distilling doesn't it 
Yeah, it does. So when you look at the alewives and the Brewsters, the way that they could be recognised in society and in markets where it was they wore a tall pointy hat, so their hat could be seen above the crowd. And they also had a broomstick outside of their residence to let people know that there was there was alcohol available. And then that was the images the Protestant church used to twist and turn and use almost as a costume for these women. You've got a wood carving. I think it's, I can't believe, uh, I can't remember if it was a church that did it that really has, like Jane says, oh, all yeah. of that. A woman with a pointy hat riding on a broomstick being chased by the devil. Yeah. And that's from the 1400s. And also then the Protestant church made the only way that to, to protect yourself from these witches was that you had to wear little wooden beads made of round train, uh, which was one of the songs Christine sang in the <laughs> yeah. show, on a red ribbon. Now, I don't know if you know much about religion, but red is a very significant colour, especially to the Protestant church. And these beads were suspiciously, well, the exact same as rosary beads. Hmm. So it was almost a, a thing of save your soul from these women. Come back to the church, we will save you. Here are some beads to protect you. And obviously rosary beads are very still are still very prolific in the Catholic and Protestant church. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because that links come from folklore, though. Yeah. Which, when it comes to a lot of things with uh, Christianity and folklore and, and the pagan religions, they're so intertwined. There's so much that's borrowed, yeah. so to speak, or taken from folklore that goes into to Christianity. Yeah. yeah. So if you're dressing up as a witch this Halloween, you're actually dressing up as an alewife and you will well be able to serve some whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I think anybody dressed up as a witch, obviously if they're over 18, should have beer or whiskey on them <laughs> exactly as a rite of passage <laughs> to these women and i think it's actually funny because if you think about it then if you dress up as a witch this halloween you're dressing up as a very powerful woman who was apparently a threat to society because of her independence luring in the fact that she could become financially independent <laughs> oh the horror oh my god so um, could you tell us a little bit about your show as well? What sort of how you came up with the idea of what people can expect and if you're bringing it back either now or in the future? Oh, yeah. So the, we laughed when you said how we came up with the show because the show was created. I met Christine a couple of days before COVID. Obviously, COVID kicked off. Honestly, never thought I'd see her again. Now yeah. I see her more than anyone else. And then I was looking outside my bar window and Christine was just standing outside the window so so obviously well she came in and obviously I had to stay and have a drink then because I'd been rude so we were drinking whiskey bar was bustling and then we were laughing away having our whiskeys and some man walked past and said oh you're like a bunch of cackling witches and then we went whiskey Whiskey witches (laughs) and we were like oh my god so it was literally born of a drunk idea Mm. that was I suppose a slagging off from a man yeah (laughs) So very, very, uh, very, very powerful <laughs> beginning. We dedicate yeah. our shows to that man. Exactly. <laughs> so we've been doing, uh, right now we've been doing 15 shows. Yeah. Uh, 10 Only... or 11 of them sold out. Yeah. And Which is great. we're going on tour in Denmark next week, actually. Um, so taking it to my home country. And two of those shows are sold out. Actually, we had to put on an extra show because the first one just went quite quickly. And then we are we are bringing it back this Christmas, but it's gonna be different. It's gonna be different. It's gonna be called the working idea right now 
is carols and cocktails. <laughs> so we do it in different ways. But bringing whiskey and witches back as that format, it's something we will continue. Oh, totally. So yeah. we were mentioned we were going to do one for Halloween because mm-hmm. obviously fitting. But we got booked for a corporate gig and we said, oh, might as well. The tickets are already sold. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be, I'm going to be honest, you know. Yeah. So we're excited for the corporate event that we're going to be doing. But we will be doing another public one because... Yeah. Honestly, the response we've gotten is is quite humbling, actually. It it's so lovely. And obviously, we're going to do the Fringe next year, yeah. definitely. We're talking to a few other th- We have a few other ideas, but we don't want to say anything in case it doesn't happen. No. And then we'll be all sad. So it's a bit of a hard question, and I do apologise, because you must get this all the time, but do you have a favourite whiskey or a favourite drink that you're going to be enjoying this sort of autumn Halloween time? That's hard. <laughs> <laughs> you want to start? Uh, yeah, I've tried loads of whiskey. My go-to dram all the time is an Ardbeg Igadal. It's a core range one from Ardbeg and it is absolutely incredible. I like how it changes depending on the location. And honestly, it's just it's just one of my, it's my, my all-time favourite. It's what made me love whiskey and I still love it to this day. But recently I did have a Lagavulin like, cast red and red wine and it made me, made oh. me, made me, made, made me nearly cross the line. <laughs> I would say I'd be definitely. It's hard. Well, I've got I've got a, quite a big love for the peated whiskies as well. Um, the first one I had was when I was eighteen. That was the Lafroig, and I think I just fell into the pot of peated whiskies. Then uh, we had quite a few in the whiskey club. I was part of in Denmark as well. I one of my favourites is honestly a Kilcoman. I think I really enjoy that one. Yeah, especially the Sanic and yeah. the Macher Bay. And it's good to support independent. Oh, those are really nice. Yeah. yeah. But to be honest, I don't turn down many drums. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, bring us one, bring us something and we'll taste it. And uh, yeah. yeah. I asked Jane and Christine to give me a rundown of what audiences can expect if and when they make it along to one of their shows. Well, and what Whiskey and Witches, what it is in general, it is a musical whiskey experience, very immersive. So we tailor each of the whiskeys from different regions to, we tailor two songs to them, stories, and then this woman does a tasting like you would not believe it. I like to get a bit strange. (laughs) But what Whiskey and Witches is, the fundamentals of it is, is to create an experience for people who either want to delve into a little bit of whiskey or into a little bit of culture or you know just have a really nice night out that's something different Mm. all the whiskey tastings it seems to be the same stuff over and over again and yes they're great they're perfect they have their place don't get me wrong i go to many of them um but it's nice to offer something to people that's a bit more accessible to a mixed crowd i don't Mm. think i've ever done a whiskey tasting that's had such a varied audience. And that's what excites me when we get people coming going, I just came for the music and the folklore. And then they go, but the whiskey was great. Yeah. I like whiskey now. And I'm like, perfect. You know, so it's a show that can go into many different regions from theater to people who like storytelling to people who just want to drink, you know, it's, and, and then it brings all these people together. And, you know, many times after the shows, we've actually stayed around with quite a few of the audience members yeah. and, you know, just chatting and got to know them and it, it, it feels so personal, all these different people from different places all coming together and it exactly like the whiskey and the stories and yeah, the music. Exactly. Because her music is phenomenal. If you hear it, oh my God, it's insane. Oh, thank you. 
Well, um, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting chat and um, good luck with the, the rest of the shows and Halloween. And um, yeah, cheers. Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you so much for having us. Cheers. It was a pleasure. Sludge it. Okay, I'm now joined by Catherine Conway-Payne. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ross. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, good, thank you. It's a lovely sunny autumnal day. It finally feels kind of cold and crisp and kind of like the season. I wanted to get you on because we're going to talk all things herbology and your new book. So for anyone that doesn't know, could you sort of give us a an introduction to what herbology is? Yes, herbology is, as we practice it at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, it's a programme of studies that embraces all aspects of holistic botanical sciences, including herbal remedy making and organic physic garden horticulture and everything else in between, like wild herbal ecology, ethnomedica, the whole kind of botanical range of studies all brought together into one unique kind of mantle under herbology. So it's obviously quite an, an ancient thing and it has quite a like a rich history and links to cultural tradition. So people might think of it more around about this time of the year because maybe people forage or they're, they're looking more around them for, for what's going on. Could you kind of give me a bit of information about that, the sort of links to cultural tradition and are there any links to Halloween? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things which we embrace as part of the herbology programmes at the Botanics is the seasonal calendar, which can be quite closely associated to the Celtic calendar and some of the more pagan fire festivals and celebrations that occur as kind of almost bookmarks in in the year. And they embrace things like foraging and going out in the wild just to, to gather a little very sustainably and conscientiously from nature. It's a time of nature's natural bounty particularly in the early autumn months of the year. We've all had, I think, a great deal of pleasure from things like just the humble blackberry this year. It's been the best blackberry harvest I think we've had for such a long time. And all the lovely succulent fruits that we can gather, but the fungi as well, although you have to be obviously very careful when you're gathering these. But they provide us with a fantastic materia medica. Those are the materials that we use in medicine making, or just ingredients would be another word, for making wonderful remedies, which can include fruit robs and liqueurs and syrups and all sorts of confections and candies as well. So as part of the herbology at the Botanics, we tend to be making remedies that will help to fortify, boost and bolster our resistance and immunity at this time of the year. So we have things like cough mixtures and lozenges and tonics as well that we also make. And do people find it quite surprising? I mean, you know, obviously people in the past would have known about the plants and things that could heal you. Now we've kind of lost that with our modern life, are, are people quite surprised of the things you can go out and get that actually would help you stay quite healthy? Yes, absolutely. And it's a delight when you see people suddenly realising how amazingly therapeutic just a little wild weed can be. Some of the of the botanicals that grow in our gardens are really just like we consider maybe such a nuisance if you're gardening things like sticky willy or the nettles, um, 
and ground elders and things, they all have remarkable potential to heal us. And if I could talk about one, which is a, a real favorite in herbology that just delights us every time we talk about it, it's actually cleavers, or the Latin name is Gallium aparin or Sticky Willy. You might know it. It's got the little sticky burrs on it that, that will you know, just adhere to you very readily if you come against it. This can be made into the most fantastic remedy really, really simply by just gathering a tangly knot of, of the sticky willy and and submerging it in a big pitcher full of water and letting it maybe refrigerate overnight. And then if you take it in the morning, just quaff it off as you would like a really refreshing glass of water. It's just so good for the lymphatic system and it's very restorative. I have it on good authority. It's an excellent remedy for a hangover. So the whiskey witches of Edinburgh might appreciate it. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it has this lovely, as you, as you drink it, you just feel it. It's like so cleansing and you go, oh, and it just tastes like kind of chilled cucumber water or something like that. So it's really pleasant to take. And it's this little weed that just climbs everywhere in the gardens and through our hedgerows and hedge banks. And many, many people just don't don't know that, how wonderful it is. Yeah, I am. Um, I only know it because I'm constantly picking the little bars out my dog. So yeah, that's yeah. good to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very clever little plant in its way. It's, it's natural dispersal of itself. It's crafty. I think it's having a laugh at our expense, but it's a really lovely thing to know about. And is it things like this that people can get from your new book, which is out at the end of the month? Absolutely. So we've embraced a lot of those sort of very natural, very simple remedies to prepare. The remedies are all very safe. They're 100% natural. We encourage the use of organic materials or ingredients as far as possible and no preservatives used. So we intend the remedies to be consumed and enjoy quite quickly once they've been made or else we suggest it could be frozen and you can revisit them later on but yes absolutely it's all things that people can make quite quite easily and um, some are a little bit more complex than others but anyone can make them and you can find the ingredients quite readily available as well. Nice. So also in your book, you've got extracts of uh, historical publications, including the Edinburgh, and I apologise if I say this wrong, Pharmacopoeia. Oh, very well pronounced. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's obviously quite interesting because people probably not really read this before. So can you sort of tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this pharmacopoeia that we're, we're um, including extracts from in the Herbology book is is actually a really precious book. That It's one of only three that exist in the whole world, and two of the copies of it are housed in the archives of the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh. So why this book is so significant for us is we were very fortunate in being able to have it translated by a, a research fellow of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, Robert Mill. And it is basically the kind of medicine maker's handbook that goes alongside another wonderful historical record that we have of the botanicals that were actually being grown in the original physic garden of Edinburgh in 1670. So this is the garden that was to gradually evolve to become the Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh that we know today. So we have this lovely sort of catalogue of plants, if you like, a gardener's catalogue that was compiled by James Sutherland, who was the head gardener back in the 17th century. 
and we knew the plants were being grown in the garden, but we didn't really know how they were how they were being used. We knew they were being grown. It was a physic garden. It was founded as a physic garden by Robert Sibbald and Andrew Balfour, who were eminent physicians of Edinburgh in their time. Um, so we knew that the purpose was of primarily it was to nurture these medicinal plants, to furnish the Edinburgh physicians with the ingredients they needed to make medicines with, or the apothecaries would be making the medicines. But we didn't know kind of what necessarily what those medicines really were or how the botanicals were being used. But this little book, The Edinburgh Pharmacopoeia, has all of that. It, it is in there. But it was relatively inaccessible because it was all in Latin. Um, so hence the need for its translation. It's a very tiny little book. It's leather bound. You can hold it in the palm of one hand. Um, but it's absolutely packed with all these formulas of extraordinary ingredients and Materia Medica, like we wouldn't believe nowadays. It is really the stuff of Halloween and witches and lotions and potions. So it's things like spiders' webs are in there and all sorts of little beetles and insects and frogs and extracts of powdered Egyptian mummy as well as precious minerals and stones and various creatures kind of poo as well and earthworms and I mean it's absolutely extraordinary and and you kind of look on it and and part of you is going oh my gosh they were actually making medicines from this but that was the practice and that was a time in history when our medicine making was quite extraordinary and and, and more closely aligned to something you would find now still in traditional traditional Chinese herbal medicine, so very polypharmaceutical. And we've lost that rather sadly now. Something you might consider it as well. It's very fortunate we're not still making plaster of frogs' legs and mercury, which is one of the recipes, or distilled waters of frog spawn and things like that. And there's truth in that. But also it was a very exciting time because all of these ingredients were being compounded to make medicines. And now we have the pharmacology and the science to actually understand a little more about these amazing ingredients that were being used and the validity of a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them is, is starting to become apparent. So, for example, snails, now the cosmetic industry is really absolutely wanting to capture snail slime and incorporate that into all sorts of beautifying, um, you know, unjoints that are very um, highly sought and prized nowadays so it's really interesting to see things kind of turning almost in a full circle with regards to that yeah I mean it's, it sounds like a, a spell book <laughs> yes you know it absolutely is I was so excited the very first time when I was working with a Latin scholar actually just looking at it and we were just deciphering even just a little of it finding any recipes in there that we could actually use safely was actually rather difficult there were very few because a lot of them have things in them like various leads and other compounds which we wouldn't want to ingest or apply topically at all but it is it's, it really is it is a, a spell book in, in many ways yeah. So to kind of go back to your book and, and the season that we're in just now do you have any I mean you've mentioned the, the sticky willy and water and drinking that are there, are there any other favourite recipes you have for autumn that people might be yes. able to go out and try? Well absolutely if, if people have sort of been gathering some fruits in the wild at all or from their gardens or allotments and they have a freezer full um, to play with or even just sourcing them locally from grocery stores you can make all sorts of wonderful things with sort of the black currant 
instance, in the elderberries and the brambles that might have been gathered a little earlier um, in the season. But elderberry rob is a personal favourite. And um, a, a rob is a very ancient remedy. It's one of our oldest remedies. And you basically just express the juice from the elderberries. Elderberries should always be gathered when they're fully ripened, so fully blackberries. And you take off the stalks. But if you, when you've gathered an, an umbel, the, the berries kind of grow on these lovely sort of umbels. And if you just freeze these in little freezer bags, you can just rub the, the frozen berries off really quickly and then put them into a pan. And as they warm up, they very readily release and express their juice. And you can encourage that to happen. And then you strain out the remnant berry pots. So you're left with this beautiful elderberry juice. And then you return that to the hob and warm that through with a little raw cane sugar. Maybe some spices if you wish, like cinnamon or some some other spices, but you don't really need to do that. Just the sugar and the elderberry juice warm through and then gently simmer it down, just bubbled away um, to a, a thicker consistency until it's quite sort of syrup-like. It's so delicious and it's so good for you. It's packed with antiviral compounds and uh, lots of vitamin C. The bluey black pigments of berries like the elderberry and, and black currants and brambles are, are packed with um, anthocyanidins which are pigment compounds which really boost your immune system as well and help to act as tonics to kind of help you through the winter months so it's perfect it's, and the antiviral element is quite specific for influenza and colds so uh, I think it's just to take it as a preventative right now is as, as good as just enjoying it as a hot toddy. And you can just take it as a, as a hot toddy and you could drizzle that over porridge in the morning or put it into warm milk and it's lovely. So that's called an elderberry rob. And the recipe for that is is in, in the book. So it's almost like no co- coincidence that these things are available to us at the time of year when we're going to need them most because you're going to get, you're probably going to get a cold now. So Yes. Yeah, I think that's why... Nature is so wonderful. I mean, need to sort of really nurture the nature that we have around us and, you know, just um, not take advantage of it. Be very conscientious if you are going out to harvest from the wild and only take things when there's an abundance and obviously do it with landowners' permissions and with due care and and uh, conscientious, respectful attitudes. But but yes, we can we can gather so much. It's nature is bountiful, and uh, it's it's very precious. We we need we need the natural world, and um, we need to take good care of it. It's really wonderful to be able to nurture things in garden spaces and maybe some allotment. If you're fortunate enough to have an allotment land that you can uh, grow things in that way, also. So, do you have any plans for Halloween. Goodness me. Yeah, I think I need to do a deep breath by the time we get to Halloween because leading up to Halloween is always such a busy time of year for us at the Botanics. We have lots of herbology groups just beginning their studies with us and obviously we have the exciting launch of the herbology book and uh, it's a very active time. We're out in the visit garden preparing various things um, that we do, little ritual practices that we have out in the garden as part of the herbology programme. So I think, yes, I'll, I'll certainly be preparing some some pumpkin lanterns, I imagine, and and and, and toasting toasting the season with some elderberry rob. And just sort of a little bit about your background as well. If you you obviously you teach this, this is what you do. Have you always been interested in sort of natural world plants herbology? Like, is it come from your family or what? What is your sort of story? Yeah, I was I was very fortunate as a child. I was I was born and raised in Carlisle, which is 
just bordering the Lake District. So a lot of my childhood was spent with my grandmother on my mother's side of the family um, in the Lake District. And my grandmother used to walk me when I was a little girl for miles and miles, uh, exhaust me, I think, through the pine woods above Keswick and all around Thornthwaite. And, and she used to make remedies. Uh, she had a lovely thing she used to make every spring called a herb pudding, which I remember from childhood, which was really special. All the spring greens. And again, it was taken as a kind of remineralizing tonic. It was common practice in rural parts, particularly in Cumbria, to make these puddings uh, in the spring. And my mother used to really relish the making of the pudding. And it was really exciting to see it. And so I, I suppose I was introduced to things like this from a very early age. And I lived in a part of the world where the countryside was very accessible and easy to reach. So that is such a blessing. Moving on as I was a little older when I went to art school, my interest in the natural world was was just sort of augmented even more because I was referencing that a lot with my design work when I was doing um, fine art embroidery and things at, at Cumbria College of Art and Design and then later here in Edinburgh at Edinburgh College of Art in the design school there. So the natural world has, you know, in all its forms, has always just captured my imagination. Well, um, thank you very much. Do you want to just tell us when your book is out, where people can buy it? Yes, thank you so much. It's it's been released on the 11th of November. It's been launched at the Botanics and it will be on sale in the Botanic Garden shop over in the John Hope Gateway building on the west side of the garden. I'm not sure if it's on sale elsewhere, but certainly you can be able to find it in the Botanics Garden. Nice. Catherine, thank you very much for your time. It's a really interesting chat and I, I'm going to go and get some elderberries. So thank oh, you very much. Oh, yes, you might just catch the last last ones are still with us. <laughs> I've missed the brambles, which I'm really annoyed about. So. <laughs> well, don't worry, because they're not quite the same as freshly gathered ones, but black currants, I'd really recommend. And you're in good time for rose hips and hawthorns and there are recipes for what to do with those in the book too. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really nice to meet you this morning. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thanks to my guests for being in this episode and thanks to you too for listening. Catherine's book is available next month from the Royal Botanic Garden shop, which is rbgeshop.org. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode of Scran. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. And here's to a spooky and delicious Halloween.